Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus. Hmm? You're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Hey, everyone. And hello, Kevin. Hey, am I at the everyone category? You're almost everyone. Hey, everybody else. Have you seen the new T-shirts? Have I seen the new T-shirt? I, yes, I have seen the new T-shirts. Well, this is a cool thing. At the time of this recording, it's not live yet. Shh. But when this episode drops, it will be live. Listeners, we have a fellow listener who happens to run a very cool online company. Very cool. Very nice. Great catalog online. Uh, They sell clothes and housewares, you know, like lifestyle Mm -hmm. stuff. And she had an idea, which was to make an official Crime Writers On t-shirt that fans of this show can buy. Not like a Jersey Shore t-shirt. No, it's actually really cool. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's actually kind of like a nice, like... $26 $26 t-shirt. It's yeah. like nice. It, it's not the one of like Calvin taking a pee on the Ford. No, side. it's also yeah. not like one of those t-shirts that's going to like shrink immediately and be scratchy. Like it looks like it's like a super nice t-shirt. And I love the Jay Peterman inspired description. Toby may have written that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, fans of the show can now buy an official Crime Writers on t-shirt. They are very cool. And we've posted a link to the catalog that is selling them on our website, crimewriterson.com. There's even a men's version and a women's version. So, Kevin, here's my question for you. How many Crime Writers on t-shirts are you going to buy? As, as many as you'll let me. <laughs> one black, one white. <laughs> buy or, like, wait till someone gives me. I think you're going to have to buy them. i have them. to buy them. I'll probably get one of each. <laughs> it's good marketing. Yeah. So, anyway, go to our website. Check out these t-shirts. We've posted a link to them on our homepage. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out our blog where you can learn how to send us a voice memo from your smartphone. And you might want to do that because we are going to be using some listener voice memos in this video very episode. You also should bookmark our, our Amazon link. It's right on our homepage, and it's a great way to support the show by buying the stuff you would have bought anyway. And who knows, maybe your order of dog food or underwear or a rowing machine that ends up on Toby's list. And speaking of that list, here it is. Just a few of the items purchased by our listeners using the Amazon link on our website, crimewriterson.com. Rebecca, roll... Why do you say roll the tape? You, you know, know there's no tape. I know. Just hit the button, roll it. Can you just say, can our listeners buy a really expensive rowing machine? <laughs> <laughs> like, I really want, like, a flat screen TV. Yeah. <laughs> Lurway 3M Rope LED Light Strip EL wire cable for festival day, Thanksgiving day, Christmas day, New Year, birthday, party light, pink. Flexion, tactical backpack, tan. 
outdoor military unisex rucksack, travel mole, day pack, bag 30, liter capacity, 600D nylon for camping, hiking, hunt, trekking, W. DIM, diindolomethane, extra strength, 200 milligrams with bioparine, two month supply. Promotes beneficial estrogen metabolism in both men and women. Squatty Potty, the original bathroom toilet stool. All right, this one's from Amazon UK, so I'm going to try and get the pronunciation right. Diesel fresh and bright microfiber. Jockstrap. UMBR jockey. Red, medium, red. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking with someone who has quite a different perspective as he listens to Serial Season 2. And his is a voice that I know you'll be interested to hear, as I was. We'll also be talking about the latest episodes of The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and we'll respond to some of your questions about our little show. And joining me to do all of that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Here comes Peter Cottontail, Rebecca. Oh, God. Hopping down the bunny trail. (laughs) The lapsed Catholic is getting all seasonal on us. You know, there's zero Catholic about Easter Bunny. And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening. And finally, our favorite career contrarian, crime, fiction, and noir writer, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. What's up, girl? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait. First off, everybody wants to know, Toby, yes. last week's Amazon list, who was that additional voice that we heard? That was my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter. People are going nuts asking about that. <laughs> Did you train her to be dry or is she just dry on her own? I kind of gave a, like, listen to me and then <laughs> try, it, try and do it that way. Do what daddy does. <laughs> exactly. It was awesome. It was awesome. She did a perfect impression of you. She's more of a thespian than I am. <laughs> She was at she was in the Wizard of Oz at Prescott Park. Oh wow! Like when she was six, maybe was she a Munchkin or? Yeah, uh... uh, she was. She was in the Lollipop Guild. She actually the Lollipop Guild. Yeah, she the Lollipop Guild. Guild. And as a member of the Lollipop Guild, did she welcome you to Munchkin Land? Not me. But uh, Dorothy. <laughs> you sure it wasn't the Lullaby League? I'm pretty sure she actually had a lollipop. She looked like the Dutch boy from that paint. <laughs> She had like a wig. That That's amazing. No, no, she had like one of those little, one of those little hats. So you have a talented and energetic and game daughter, right? Yes. So is there any chance we may hear her voice in a future podcast? Please uh, say yes. Please I, say I, yes. Should, Please say yes. She'd be very excited. Okay. Well, speaking of voices, we've talked a whole lot on this show about what we know we aren't getting in Serial Season 2 because none of us is a military person nor comes from military families. So That's not true. Well, Rebecca. My, okay, my family is wh- Where barely, were you born? Where were you born? West Point Military Hospital. Yeah, duh. Barely. You have a father who's a Marine. Yeah. <laughs> I would not say that any of us 
is in any way other than those two facts and the fact that we have our bank accounts at USAA in any way connected to military LifeLock is not going to like you disclosing that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree. There are military families, people who travel around the country. It doesn't mean that you don't understand the military culture. The thing is, we do not serve. We don't have anyone in our immediate family who is serving or has served in the current climate. Agreed. And it's not the same thing. So we thought it might be time to get someone with that point of view on our show. So to that end, Kevin and I connect with a guy who's pretty much, would we all agree, as military as it gets. <laughs> and we had a pretty great conversation. So let's listen to that, and then we can talk about it on the other side. So are you guys ready for this? I'm ready. All right. I'm just going to let him introduce himself. Hello, my name is James Wyrick. I'm a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel. I'm a practicing lawyer. And I also do a podcast on Serial called Task and Purpose Radio. I've been doing that for about six, eight months now. And I am a big Serial fan. Do you know that you sound a little bit like that scary guy, Ken Wolf on Serial Season 2? Has anyone ever told you that? No. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you should be like the sportscaster at a rock radio station. You've got such a great voice. My morning zoo. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about how the podcast started. Did it start with Serial Season 2 or was it in place beforehand? We started right with Serial Season 2. And it was Lauren's idea. I'd been writing for her and she's one of the editors there along with uh, Brian Adam Jones. They started Task and Purpose around a year and a half ago. And I'd written maybe a half dozen stories for them. And then Lauren approached me with starting a podcast about Serial. I do that along with Nate Bethay. And he's a former army officer who was actually in Bergdahl's platoon in Afghanistan when he left. Okay, so are you active duty now? No, I'm retired. Okay, so you're retired. So when you're listening to Serial and you're talking to non-military folks, you aren't constrained by the same kinds of things that we hear sometimes in the podcast. Sarah Koenig doesn't always necessarily identify why somebody might not be as open as they are. And I think that has to do with the fact that some people just can't be. But you are fairly able to just sort of talk off the cuff about your reactions on things and you're comfortable doing that with us, right? Absolutely. And (laughs) I think some of the, some of the problems there are, it seemed that the army tried to put a gag order on everybody about discussing it. So I think even those people, some of the people that are retired are a little bit leery about what they can talk about. I was in the Marine Corps, so the army has no (laughs) can't constrain me. Well, it seems like you keep crossing streams because one of the things that you are are doing now is that you're uh, an advocate for military justice reform. Uh, Yes. Which includes things like, uh, you know, military gag orders and the way that servicemen are treated. Well, yes. And I think that how it crosses over in the Bo Bergdahl case, and, and we'll see this play out later, is the problems you can have with command influence that having commanders in charge of the UCMJ can make some difficulties. We had in the Bergdahl case, uh, Senator McCain had come out and said that if there wasn't punishment in this case, that he would hold a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing about it. 
that's definitely pressure on the commander, General Abrams, and that's pressure on the jurors. You know, that's something that we actually talked about on our show, because our expertise is obviously in civilian criminal justice. I don't want to say our expertise. We have varying degrees of expertise, Kevin and I. No, you definitely are experts. I've listened to (laughs) to all of it. Well, I think that Laura is probably the most expert in terms of being an insider, and Kevin and I are experts in terms of, you know, looking at cases from the outside. And there is a higher power in this case. I think that when McCain made that statement, a switch sort of flipped and made it impossible for this to be looked at as other cases would be looked at. Now, I'm guessing in your role as Judge Advocate General that you have dealt with a lot of cases, you know, varying in degrees in their severity. And have you ever seen this sort of pressure on a case like this before? Well, I'm either famous or infamous, depending on what side you're on, for one of the last cases I was involved in before I retired, and that was the case of four Marines that were accused of urinating on bodies in Afghanistan. And that saw that kind of pressure. You had pressure from the Commandant, uh, General Amos. You had pressure from various senators. The the president had made statements about it. So these high-profile cases that once they take on a life of their own are very difficult for the military to deal with. In fact, in those urination cases, they had to dismiss the charges on almost all of those because of the problems of unlawful command influence. I'm really comfortable with the fact that I'm listening to the story as a civilian. I know that I don't understand military life and I know that military people know that I don't get it. What do you think so far, though, in that translation that Sarah is trying to do, telling the story? What is she missing or what is she doing a good job of? I'm just wondering what you hear when you listen to the show and what you don't hear. Well, first of all, I got to say, I went to the one of the serial events here in California up at uh, UC Davis, and it was uh, some non-criminal stalking I did of Sarah and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Julie. I, I, I tried Says to figure you. out. <laughs> I tried to figure out where they would uh, be staying. I ended up figuring it out and I enjoyed a drink with them after get out uh, yeah i spent an hour with them what does sarah katie drink just tell us right now uh she was i think they were both drinking an ipa but they were fantastic and i've got to say that those women can really tell a story they're great reporters and they were very generous with their time. Did they know you? Were they familiar with task and purpose? Uh, they definitely knew about you. You were part of their presentation. Oh, <laughs> and the cease and desist order? <laughs> no, no. They were because the the entire presentation was about the first season of how they invented cereal. Mm-hmm. And so one of their slides was about how cereal uh, had created other podcasts. So the podcasts about the podcast. And you guys were listed right up there. Yeah, we heard about that. <laughs> no, and then I will say what I wish they would have done differently. And I understand it's a serialized program. If they would have put episodes nine and 10, which I think are some of the best, if they would have put those closer to episodes like two and three. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you guys pointed out was that what we have not really gotten is the, you know, sort of the historical background of this extremely long war. It took almost the end of the season to really get an understanding 
of the politics at play and, you know, the different parties on the ground and why things are the way they are. It's almost like if this were a book, I think this would be sort of that history lesson would be interspersed in some of the early chapters. But because it's one episode, sort of one theme, it took a long time to get that and get sort of the proper context for what is actually the war in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Serial is great about taking a small story and then expanding that into the larger issues. And I think they've done that this season, but by front-loading it so much with Bergdahl, a lot of our listeners at Task and Purpose Radio, they're mostly military. Mm -hmm. And they saw it as a large kind of apology piece or almost, you know, an... An infomercial for for him. An infomercial for sympathy toward him? Is that what you're... Yes. Yeah. I personally don't see it that way, but I'm, you know, I'm fairly attuned to the legal issues. But I can also see how if they would have moved it about, hey, wait a second, we're just using Bo Bergdahl's case to illustrate the larger issues of how long are we going to stay in this war? What is that going to do to our members of the military? What does that do to the military where it has to lower its standards and take somebody like Bergdahl? And I think that our listeners would have been much more supportive of that narrative than just having it be so much about Bergdahl. In the way that the Adnan Syed case told the larger story of the criminal justice system, you're saying that maybe the Bergdahl story could have been used to tell the larger story of the war. Oh, yes. And I think it has. I think that they lost some listeners. They still have tons of listeners. I, I mean, I think both of our shows are jealous of their listeners, but uh, <laughs> but they, they lost some people's interest because people and I have to steal this line from another podcast about serial, the women of um, serially obsessed. They said, hey, once we saw the picture of Bo smoking a pipe, we get it. He's weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, then, but, you know, that I think one of the girls said, yeah, I've dated like five guys like that. I agree with you. I'm a big fan, as you know, of Sarah Koenig. I love the storytelling at This American Life. And I'm a huge fan of Serial. And I don't think this is bad. However, even from our point of view, our civilian, non-military point of view, the arc has felt front-loaded with suffering. Maybe it was just an underestimation on their part about what we needed to know to be empathetic. I don't know. Maybe there was an assumption that people would not be empathetic at all, and that's why that was done that way. But I'd love to hear some more of your thoughts on sort of the story arc stuff, because it's interesting to me that that's where you started. You know, I sort of expected you to start with, well, I really wish they would explain X, Y, and Z, and I really wish they would do a better job detailing the I don't know anything about the military, so I can't even give you examples about the military stuff that you would have maybe like hypothetically have complaints about. But that you started with, I wish episodes nine and ten would be closer to episode two. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about the storytelling in places you thought it's worked and places you thought there could have been more a better arc done if it were put in a different order, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think they've done a really good job of explaining all the military issues. They've they've had great interviews. I think they've portrayed all the different voices. And especially the last episode, episode 10, was incredible. 
And I had written about the Bergdahl case for Vice News six months ago. Ooh. Yeah. And I, <laughs> you got and fancy, I fancy journalism career going on there. Well, These guys have got an awful lot. I don't mean to interrupt, but Nate is in an MFA program. And oh, yeah. He's, oh, he's a very I mean, there, we said, I think, like in our episode, too, if somebody does soldiers on serial, Forget that we're they're dead. actual writers. They're like better writers than I we know, are. More cred I know. than we are. God. <laughs> yeah. Brian Adam Jones that started all of this, he's at Columbia, also in an MFA. A degree. It's a, yeah, they're, they're a very talented group. And you can all do like lots of push-ups and run lots of miles <laughs> carrying things. They can do more. I'm older now. <laughs> <laughs> but they definitely did a good job of portraying all those voices. And episode 10 was so great. I, as I was saying, I wrote about the Bergdahl case and I had read through the entire article 32 transcript. That's the preliminary hearing. And I didn't catch when now Lieutenant General Dahl had said I was told not to look into the issue of whether anyone died looking for Bergdahl. Hmm. Because he then goes on to say, well, during my investigation, I never found any of that. But the serial people were excellent on picking up that although he didn't find that, he was told not to look for that. And I think that if our readers would have heard that earlier in in the story, they would have said like, okay, wait a second, Serial's here to do heavy duty reporting. Right. And hold the army, their feet to the fire and make sure they're doing everything right. You know, we, we hear an awful lot in, in your podcast when you guys talk about essentially, oh, the civilians don't get X, Y, or Z. And I think there was one time when I was listening that I thought, you military guys didn't get what the civilians were thinking in their response. And that was when they were talking about how there was a, um, a perception that the value of military equipment was more important than the value of military personnel. I think, you know, the comments you guys made were like, yeah, you know, that's the way it is. And to the rest of us, we were kind of appalled at that concept. Can you explain? Are we are we wrong? I don't think either side's wrong. I think that Mark Ball was wrong. When he says, you know, Bo Bergdahl, he had something to say and it was really important, you know, that they were guarding this equipment and that was putting their lives in danger. Well, just being in Afghanistan is putting everybody's life in danger. If we were totally worried about the lives or if that was of paramount importance, we wouldn't be there. There just is risk doing anything. So I don't think he could quite grasp that. And the commander, and uh, I'll say that Nate Bethay, uh, who served under their, the commander, could say nothing but glowing things about him, that he understood there's that proper mix of a military commander has to choose between mission and safety. And although Bo probably can't really make that same Determination. I would say that's fair to say. Is this the same commander that we heard about in the podcast, the one with the shaving comment? Yes. Okay, so Nate Bethay likes him, and that was the same guy. Oh, he guy totally respects, and, and uh, Sergeant Fox. It's first Wolf. Sergeant Fox. Wolf. Wolf, excuse yes. me. <laughs> the scariest person in the world. Yes. <laughs> he sounds so badass. Sergeants yeah. are always, yeah, they are very... You gotta like, be yeah, born into that, right? Now. Yeah. So interesting, and I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, Nate, I'm, I don't want you to have to speak for Nate, but he's not on the line right now, and his experience experience in that company, what was it like there when they were sort of, I don't know, painted as black sheep? Because there was that message that either Bo had wandered off or had lagged behind. And then 
this was the company, the Bergdahl company. What, what was what was that? And nobody ever like? corrected that. Yeah, that was. I, I didn't hear any correction of that. Certainly, that, that definitely still weighs on some of them. That they feel that that the narrative that he just wandered off. You know, other military organizations, other companies, other platoons would say like, "What? You just let one of your guys wander off? Like, what's wrong with all of you guys?" Where you know, in reality. Somebody gave us a kind of defective soldier that wandered off, but, you know, it wasn't our fault. I think those members of that that platoon still harbor some resentment over that, that they're kind of viewed as these black sheep or that they weren't wired tight. So what do you make of Bo Birdall? Oh, that's so difficult to say. He's um, <laughs> He's fascinating. He's a fascinating young man, and he's definitely someone that we should not have allowed in the military that the Coast Guard had already screened out. I mean, I've I've had clients before with with mental conditions and never with uh, schizotypal uh, behavior disorder, but other mental conditions. And I think it's so difficult for for most of us to understand that. And I'm not saying that I do, but that we just want to think, well, why didn't he just do things right? And it's like, well, his brain doesn't work right. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't understand this. This always struck me. It doesn't seem that he can understand hyperbole and the military. We are full of hyperbole. You know, you have that first sergeant that's going to say, I'm going to, you know, rip off your head and defecate down the hole. Mm-hmm. That never happened. They never say <laughs> and, that. Well, they can't actually I, do it. And then, <laughs> yeah, I can see. I can see Bergdahl's brain, you know, going through. He's like, you're going to remove, you know, someone's cranium and then defecate. Like, no, he doesn't mean that. That that Bergdahl got so upset about the comment about rape, kill and pillage and burn. Mm -hmm. It's because he just can't understand that nuance. He doesn't seem able to process that correctly. But then you also have to really admire him. He's amazing in his ability to withstand just torturous conditions for five years. So he remains an enigma to me. I mean, an interesting one, but an enigma nonetheless. What do you think of this idea that sort of comes up over and over again, that people who spend FaceTime with him land on that and that people who don't have FaceTime with him are the ones who are, you know, let's just send him away for another 20. I mean, did you think that that's what accounts for that difference is sort of that empathy towards someone who just can't rather than someone who just isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing? Or he has a magical power over people. I think that it was one of your episodes, I believe, episode eight, that you had discussed that. It's so right on that I think when people meet him, obviously I've never met him, but it seems that when people meet him, they come away understanding that, oh, he's just not like he didn't mean to do this. He's just not okay. And I think that that has to be what accounts for. I mean, you have the Article 32 officer, uh, an army lieutenant colonel, uh, then two star, now three star general. That spent time with him, you have the head of SEER for the Department of Defense, and they all come away saying that he was an honorable person, he's honest, but he's just wrong. His insights are wrong, but he honestly holds them, if that makes sense. Now, you're one of the few people who are actually, I mean, when I say following the case, you're reading the documents, obviously you have the experience to sort of analyze that. From where you sit now, 
in this case, who has the upper hand, the prosecution or the defense? The prosecution has a large, large problem right now. And I say this having been a prosecutor for a similar type of case. Right now, the case is stalled because the government has taken an appeal up to our appellate courts about the military judge's ruling on a protective order for classified information. Right. And I spent three years as a prosecutor down in Guantanamo Bay, and I know I was a lead prosecutor on a case, and I know what it takes to get other agencies to turn over their classified information. I believe there's either approximately 30,000 documents that the Army has identified that they need to produce in discovery. None of that has occurred yet. And because of how all this went down, because of the, the rescue efforts and because how many other agencies were involved, there's going to be classified information from every three-letter entity that the government has, DIA, CIA, FBI, and the government prosecutors need to convince those various entities that they need to turn over their information. And that I've dealt with it. It's difficult. They don't want to. They have lawyers on their side that have differing views. You might have CIA or FBI that don't want to turn over information because they say, well, why do we really want to prosecute Bo Bergdahl? That's really not in our agency's best interest. And you saw this before, and uh, Sarah did a good job of this, explaining that even when they were looking for Bergdahl, they would ask for reconnaissance assets, drones and other assets to go look for him. And that just didn't come up to CIA or other entities top level of priorities. So they just wouldn't get it. And that's the same problem that the prosecution is going to have in this case. So it's, it's a matter of priorities, not a matter of there being some information that they don't want to share, just a matter of them not having anything to gain by sharing any information at all. There's there's a lot of foot dragging when it comes to that. They know they need to turn it over, but they would rather see and we see this it's called you know gray mail we see this happen a lot when they're in classified prosecutions that there's just foot dragging by the other agencies because they would rather just see the case go away then they don't have to turn over anything and it's kind of no skin off their back you know they the fbi or cia or dia they don't really care one way or another about bergdahl that's really only an army issue so if they can just get the case to go away yeah, they're kind of happy. So what's the likelihood that Bergdahl does some significant jail time? Uh, significant jail time, I think, is very low. You might have some jail time. We've had other cases like this. We had a deserter come back from the Army. He came back in 2004 from North Korea. He had spent since like 1968 in North Korea. He ends up getting prosecuted, and he got, a, I believe, a dishonorable discharge, and he did 30 days. There's a Marine Corps case from Vietnam, and he got a similar type of punishment. That's what the Garwood case. And he got a dishonorable discharge, and he didn't do any additional jail time. But did he have John McCain making public statements and <laughs> Donald Trump doing rallies and talking about throwing him out of a helicopter and all of this other public pressure? I think he was in jail with John McCain, actually, right? <laughs> I mean, how, how much? No, is, he would have been the same time. Exactly. Is, I mean, is there a chance that this sort of pressure and, the, and this fear of, you know, being defunded or not being able to advance? I mean, could these pressures create a different outcome than precedent would predict that the outcome would be? 
I think that you could probably have the military members hand down a sentence that was serious, but then that would be a lot more difficult on the backside upholding that conviction because of those outside influences. But I still I still think that once you know, there's a lot of of people on the Internet that say and people running for office or in office that say harsh things about Bo Bergdahl. But I think that if you're required and our military members are very good at this, if you're required to sit there and be a juror and hear about everything that went on with him, I don't think that you can then just say, okay, another 30 years in jail. I think that would be very difficult for them. That's just my hunch, and I'm going by, as you've pointed out in your previous broadcast, that people that spend time with Bergdahl and hear about him, they become sympathetic. Back to the storytelling then, where are you hoping that the serial team takes this story in their last couple of episodes? I mean, we don't know for sure how many are left, but where are you hoping it will go? Oh, I wish there were so many more left. That you might be the left. only person in America, no, I at least the only person on Twitter who says that. <laughs> hey, we've got some Harry's <laughs> Razor's ad to read. I, yes, I'm kind exactly, of yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I think that they'll go into, and they knew this. I actually asked this question at the serial symposium. I said, what are you going to do about the court martial? And they said, well, we always planned for that. We're going to have an ending knowing that the court martial won't be over. So I think they will probably end with trying to resolve this issue of why did the government not investigate did anyone die looking for Bo Bergdahl? So you think that's the big question that they're going to leave us with? Yeah, because that's, I'll tell you, I think that's the worst outcome. Right. Because then everybody's upset. Mm -hmm. You know, the members of his platoon are upset. The people that lost either friends or relatives or, or fathers or husbands, they're upset that they didn't get their day in court. And then the people that feel sorry for Bergdahl are upset. I think that that's the, absolutely the worst case scenario. If the army would have decided, I could see them legitimately deciding, listen, he came back. We could take him to a court martial. We're not going to. We're just going to separate him from the army administratively. Mm -hmm. But if they're going to take him to a court martial and a general court martial, they should be pulling out all the stops. Mm -hmm. And if there's evidence that people died directly looking for him, the government needs to present that to the jury. That's just what needs to be done as a prosecutor. That's what the people expect from their representative in any kind of criminal case. All right. So one final question. Do you think Adnan Syed is guilty or not guilty? <laughs> <laughs> I can say I can say that uh, oh, he's been found guilty by a jury. <laughs> All right. That's a fair answer. Well, I can't tell you how wonderful it's been talking to you about this. Like your, your point of view is singular and really we've needed it, I think. <laughs> and we let you talk way more than Lauren and Nate let you talk. <laughs> Nate loves to talk. So I just kind of, uh, I kind of hang back sometimes. Well, James Byrick, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I couldn't be happier to join you. And once again, that was James Wyrick, or Wyrick as he asked us to call him. He's a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel and Judge Advocate, and just one of the voices on the other serial-related podcast called Task and Purpose, or as Kevin calls it, Soldiers on Serial. Wyrick was nice enough to connect with us at home from his home in Northern California. 
All right. I want to get one thing out of the way. Does Wyrick have maybe the second best military radio voice in history behind Ken Wolf, the sergeant that we heard on Serial? Oh, pro- yeah. Yeah, or Lee Remick, you know, who's the the drill instructor from Full Metal Jacket, who was in real life a real drill instructor. You know, you're cut for that part, like you know, in a movie, and he he fits it. He'd be great in the radio play. I kind It'd of be better if those guys just like let the profanity fly. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like Laura, and maybe you know, maybe you heard this too. I kind of feel like it sounds like he was born with like a glass of whiskey in one hand and like a cigar in the other hand. And pretty much, I could just listen to him all day. All right, so we heard him say a lot of stuff. But one of the things that we heard him say, which I thought was really interesting, that he came right out of the gate with like a narrative comment. You know, Laura is. Is he right that Sarah waited way too long to provide this bigger picture of the war, the 15-year war that the U.S. has been in, in order to better inform the story of Bo Bergdahl? I mean, I guess it depends where you think she's going with this story. If she's going where he's talking about, where kind of the bigger picture is, we were in this war too long. These are the consequences. We had to let in people that we wouldn't have normally let in because we were still there and we couldn't find people. Then she did wait too long. I kind of feel like I agree with him where he was saying she definitely was trying to build the sympathy up front for Bo. So, I mean, I think it could have gone either way, depending on where she wants to come out on the other side at the end. Now, Toby, what's the most surprising thing to you that you heard Wyrick say during our conversation with him? I guess it was when he thought that Bo probably isn't going to face much in the way of time, if any time, and that the prosecution has this difficulty in getting the information they need in order to to prosecute him in the court-martial, and that the precedent for people who've done essentially what he's done is like a month. So I thought that was kind of interesting because, you know, it, it seemed like the stakes for Bo have been sort of put at, you know, he could spend the rest of his life in prison or he might not get out until he's an old man. And now it's like, well, you know, he might miss Thanksgiving or or something, you know. So I I thought that that kind of changed my perspective on it. It changed mine, too. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, you know, we heard Wyrick talk in our conversation about having been involved in that case. where Being either infamous or famous or infamous? Infamous or famous for that case in which the soldiers, you know. The Marines urinated. Urinated on the bodies of the... Just give us a little bit of background sure. on Wyrick. I, mean, I want to speak for Wyrick. It's, it's his story to tell, but we, we know that his involvement in the case was uh, he was the whistleblower as far as undue command influence on the case. When the original three-star general was assigned to look into the details around this incident where Marines photographed themselves urinating on the body of insurgents, the commandant of the Marine Corps, the number one guy in the Marine Corps, went to this general and said he wanted them, quote, crushed, and he wanted them out. And then when this three-star general sort of pushed back and said that he didn't think he could do that and he had to let the process play out, uh, as he was flying back to the U.S., he got halfway back, and the commandant's assistant called and said, you're off the case. And the commandant tried to say that he realized he made a mistake and that he was inserting, you know, he, he had tainted the the prosecution and he wanted to remove him. But, you know, Wyrick has filed a complaint with the inspector general. And then, like, not long after that... He was reassigned. He was reassigned. Right. So, you know, if anybody's going to... has the credibility to speak on whether or not officer influence or superior, you know, superiors influencing the military justice outcomes of enlisted men, it's Wyrick. So not only do we, like, really like him for his insight, but, you know, he's got brass balls. He's got brass balls, and he's also, would we all not agree, the most square-faced 
maybe intimidating looking bulldog bodied like soldier type guy. He's legit. No, he's a Marine. He's a barrel chest. (laughs) I don't know. I think he's a big teddy bear under all that. Oh, I think he is too. (laughs) Oh yeah, Rebecca, I'm getting a little jealous right now. And you should, because he's younger than you and he's retired. (laughs) And he has a pension. Sorry, Kevin. That's all right. So anyway, Kevin, next week in Serial, it promises to be the week where we find out about the human toll of Bo Bergdahl's actions. So tell me, what what do you think is at stake for the audience in that episode of Serial that's coming up? Well, a couple things. I mean, people have had, you know, confirmation bias throughout this whole thing where either they find Bergdahl sympathetic and they're in some ways, you know, looking for the the evidence of things that uh, minimize his actions or they feel that he's traitorous and they're looking for confirmation of things that show that he deserves to go to jail for a very long, long time. And the question, you know, like we said last week, what's the balance on the scales, whether or not anybody was was killed or injured looking for Bergdahl. Our opinion about Bo Bergdahl could change dramatically based on what we learned. Now, we talked briefly about whether or not there is documentation of people being killed in action looking for Bergdahl. And it's a little mixed because the ones that most media outlets point to happen two months or three months after the dust one. However, what I found in the Article 32 documents was an objection by Bergdahl's defense attorneys against the testimony of First Sergeant Mark Allen. Now, you're going to ask, who is Mark Allen? And we're no, gonna, not. Who is Mark Allen? Tell- <laughs> you're just going to tell Thanks, us. Gracie. <laughs> Mark Allen was a First Sergeant who was shot by a sniper in the head six days after Bergdahl went missing. He's disabled now. You've seen Gabby Giffords. You know what a head wound can do. He is not nearly as functional as she is. He is completely disabled. The motion was whether his wife, who was a PFC, could testify on his behalf. So whether or not we can make the case that any of those other soldiers and Marines who were killed in action has anything to do with Bergdahl, this looks serious. This seems to be that he was severely wounded just days after Bergdahl's dust one. So, Toby, I'm curious. With everything, let's just say that what Kevin just threw out there about this, uh, Mark Allen, is part of the equation. And let's just say that, you know, now we've heard everything that Wyrick says about sort of the accountability of the army potentially for having let Bergdahl in and also whether or not the government actually investigated this tie between soldiers dying in the search for Bo Bergdahl or not. For you at this point, would it change things in terms of your opinion about Bo Bergdahl and his culpability if the serial team were to draw those direct lines between soldiers getting you know, wounded or dying in this search? For you, does it change the level of Bo Bergdahl's guilt or culpability given everything else that you know that you've heard so far this season? You know, I, I guess... In- <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to be squishy on this but in some ways yes and in some ways no in that even if nobody had been killed his walking away endangered people so to that extent he did an action with the likelihood that there would be consequences and whether those consequences were actually borne out or not as far as his moral choice goes I don't think it affects that as much whether he is sort of uh, more open for punishment? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. You know, this isn't a great analogy, but if you if you have a few drinks and you drive home and you get home safely, it's not good. But to a certain extent, no harm done. You have a few drinks, you like head on with another car and you, and you kill somebody. That's a, that's a different story. 
So in both cases, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. One has more consequence. I guess my feeling is that perhaps the biggest failure for this season of Serial is that we don't have enough sort of empathy for Bo or a sense of him, sort of a visceral sense of him, that this is the kind of thing that would affect it. I, I was thinking about this earlier today, that with both Adnan and also with Stephen Avery and Brandon Dassey, you know, you just got the feeling that you knew them. And I think part of what was the outrage behind it is that you kind of had a sense of them as, as human beings, what their personalities were like, and that there was this disconnect between the audience's understanding of them and the way the judicial system seemed to be looking at them, which was basically a random person who did something. You're right, because it seems like everybody that has interaction with him becomes very empathetic towards him. And we, as an audience, because of sort of the secondhand interviewing, it's not affecting us the same way. Right. Exactly. And there are differences between Stephen Avery and Bo Bergdahl. For example, we know that Stephen Avery has also gone to prison for other crimes. We know that Stephen Avery has been accused of domestic... Falsely accused of, of the rape. Right. But he also went to jail for burning a cat in a fire. And we also know that he was accused of domestic violence. And we also know that he has a record, yet we have all this empathy based on sort of our one-to-one or through television one-to-one interaction with him, which we don't have in this podcast, that sort of one-stream-moved interview, which we've talked about. However, the other thing that Wyrick pointed out, and Laura, I'm going to ask you this question, Wyrick, I think, really surprised me in his, I mean, he has the same justice issues I do, I think, in talking about Bo, of what he's able to do and what he's not able to do because of the way that he's wired. And maybe somebody who has somebody in their family or their life who lives with somebody with different kind of brain wiring might sort of inherently be more empathetic when they hear that somebody has, you know, a disorder that's about wiring and maybe they make decisions because they can't make any other kind of decision. I want to know for you, Laura, Serial uncovered something that the government did or didn't investigate that, you know, people were injured or died directly because Bo walked away. At this point, would it change your feelings about Bo? I, I have to say it probably wouldn't, because for me, I find myself actually being very sympathetic to Bo because I just feel like, honestly, I mean, he was dealt a hand with, like you said, his wiring. And this is who he is. And I do think that in some regard, the military is going to take some responsibility for letting him in on that waiver. There was a lot of red flags in terms of his particular psychological issues that really, uh, you know, he shouldn't have been there. So for me, I mean, I think it would be definitely adding to the tragedy of this whole situation that people's lives are lost. But I also have to question if they haven't really investigated it to this point. How accurate is it going to be now that they're sort of backtracking? Are they really going to be able to give us an accurate depiction of what did happen? You know, some of this is going to be sort of like we were talking about last week. You know, some people that were there as a result of this, but not directly involved in the search who died. You know, I think it's going to be interesting now that they're sort of backpedaling, trying to nail this down to see what information they're actually able to provide, if any. I mean, I'm I'm not holding out great hope that they're going to give us any accurate information about how many people died or were injured. Rebecca, why do you have a new debit card this week? Oh, wait. We, we have to make a transition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Is Kevin. identity gets hey. stolen. <laughs> why do you have a new debit card this week? 
Did we, somebody start using your debit card? They did, but can we just say that that was a terrible transition into an ad? What happened? Well, Where did they go? Well, it turns out that somebody this week decided to go to a Walmart in Florida and spend about $400 on stuff and also went to a like some place where you could make a cell phone call by swiping a card and also made like a $52 phone call using my card. <laughs> and I may or may not have gotten a fraud alert on my debit card this week. Yeah, that's why uh, we're very glad we've got LifeLock Ultimate Plus Identity Theft Protection. LifeLock works with your bank and all of your accounts to double check to make sure nobody is doing stuff like that. They have uh, read-only access to all your accounts, and they're checking to make sure that people like Rebecca don't get <laughs> don't get taken. And look, even if that does happen and you do get taken because your identity is well, stolen or at least borrowed for a couple of days, they'll work to restore it. They have experts that will make those phone calls, will go to the courts, will get private detectives to make sure that you are whole again. Now, no one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock Ultimate Plus provides LifeLock's most comprehensive identity theft protection. Rebecca, I'm so glad that nobody took you away from me and stole your identity. I'm so glad that you have not learned how to transition from our content into an ad because this is hilarious. <laughs> Would we all agree that was like a zero out of ten? I thought that was like going to be like a nine out of ten. <laughs> why why I was, would you think that? Because I was just going to do it. <laughs> it was just going to be so organic. I think it's better when we when I sort of say something like... Now Kevin's right, going to say something? Yes, now Kevin's going to say something. Like, I, I think the audience has to get like a little bit of a cue. Like, we're going to talk about this thing next, but first, and now this. Ba-boom. <laughs> All right, finish this Go commercial. to lifelock.com now and enter promo code... Crime Writers, or call and mention Crime Writers to save 10%. Call 1-800-866-7341. Or go to lifelock.com. That's lifelock.com. Well, we actually have Lifelock now because of you, right? Well, we need it now because of you. <laughs> Why do they always go to Walmart? That's what I want to know. Isn't that, isn't that something that's always the story? Like someone takes your stuff and then they go to Walmart, like immediately. Yeah. What's it like happened to me? Look, it's not about being scared, folks. It's about being smart. Hey, Laura, it never happened to me either before this week. And it was literally a Walmart in Florida, which seems so cliche. But apparently that's what everyone who steals your debit card number does. Yeah. Wow, good Brace yourself. Do they clone a card? I mean, I don't know how that works. No idea. There are so many ways that your information can be stolen, whether it's a skimmer or whether it's somebody reaching into your mailbox and pulling out your... Uh, I have a guess. I have account. a guess. Yeah. Coincidentally, my younger son, who's 13, also got in big trouble last week for spending a bunch of money on like an online video game situation. And I think that maybe his use of my debit card on this online video game situation is what led to an untoward person being able to shop at Walmart. Well, wait a minute. Actually, could he have been in Florida? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Kevin... I'm going to transition now. Is there anything else that we should be talking about right now before we get back to our conversation? And now this? Well, if I ever get those Let credit cards. Let me scratch card- my beard on that. <laughs> oh. Ooh, good one, Toby. That's right. We're also sponsored by Harry's.com. Yes. Harry's, is Harry's the, Razors. Harry's is the only shaving company that has both amazing quality and low prices. Over one million guys have already made the switch and thousands more switch every day. And ladies, 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 as a gift... <laughs> Why don't you get a Harry subscription for the man in your life? Give it to your to dad, give it to your husband, or Rebecca, 
That's sexist. The ladies should know that like Harry's is good. That they could have it for themselves, or they Maybe could. Maybe I'll try it. They could please the man in their life. Yeah, like we have parts of our body that we shave as well. I just think sure. like it's sexist. And if you want those uh, five blade German cartridges running down your leg, that's great. Or you could <laughs> give it to a guy and say, "Look, I know I don't do much for you." <laughs> I just cook, clean, do the laundry, take the kids to school, and attend to your every need. And berate you constantly. Yes. So please, have these Harry's razors as a sign of my love to you. All right. Well, as my special gift to you guys, I actually did give my Harry's box to someone in my life, and I interviewed him while he was using them, and I just want to play you a quick bit of tape of my interview with my teenage son, who, barely teenage son. <laughs> my barely teenage son. And what his experience with Harry's razor sounded like. So I'm just going to like play that for you guys right now. Read the directions. Warm water, wet face, apply cream, circular motion. Caution, do not put in your eyes. Rinse if you do. Please don't eat. Harry's razors. Are you going to eat it? Hell no. Was opening the shaving cream with your teeth in the directions? No, I might have gotten some in my mouth, but... I think it's all right. Is that what they meant when they said don't eat it? I think that should be a thing that they add on the bottle. Try it out. Oh, man. Do you feel like you're accomplishing anything? It feels like a massage, like... No, you're exaggerating, right? No, 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 no. No, you don't understand. This is like... I don't know. As somebody who hasn't spent a whole lot of time shaving within their 14 years of residence on this earth, it doesn't take much to tell that this... Is an experience over your average razor. Do you just cut your face? Um, a little bit, but <laughs> is it the blade's fault it. or the experience's fault? Exactly. <laughs> I just want to say he for cut the himself shaving. I just want to say for the record, he did not cut himself because of the razor. He cut himself because he's fourteen and he does not know what the hell he's doing. That's true. But look, if he didn't like it, he can send it back to Harry's. He would get his money back. The starter pack for Harry's is you get a razor. Moisturizing shave cream that we know Toby loves and Which three is razor awesome. It's great. And it actually, right, you didn't just remove the shaving cream from your cheeks, no. right? Whiskers as well. Yeah. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code CRIME. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H A R R Y S.com. Enter code CRIME at checkout. It lets them know that you heard about it here. All right, guys. How did Kevin do on the second ad of this podcast? That was better. All right. Well, now that we are done with the business part of our podcast, uh, we did ask listeners to send us their questions and voice memos this week. And we did get a few. To be fair, we got just one until the newsletter went out. And then we got a few more. So the first two that we got were both from overseas, which was pretty awesome. And they're kind of related. So I'm just going to play them both. Let's just hear what these listeners had to say. And then we will talk about it after we hear that. Hi from Ireland, Crime Writers On. So my question isn't actually in regards to serial. I was wondering if you have any other podcast that relates to crime, fiction, non-fiction, doesn't matter, that you would recommend. I've caught up on all of the serial podcasts that are out there. Um, I've caught up on the black tapes and I don't know what to do with my life now between episodes of Serial and Crime Writers On. So um, I'd really love your recommendations. Thanks a million. I absolutely love the show. Look forward to it every week. Keep up the good work. Bye. Hi, crime writers. My name is Minika and I'm from the Netherlands. I was wondering whether you'd heard of new podcast, Real Crime Profile, hosted by Jim Clementi, Laura Richards, 
and Lisa Sambati. They cover a lot of crime TV programs. They've talked about uh, the facts behind the Steve Avery case, making a murderer. And they're currently discussing the People versus O.J. Simpson and looking at all the evidence and stuff behind that. It's really interesting. And I was just wondering whether you'd heard of it and what you thought about it. So, Laura, I think you actually are listening to Real Crime Profile, right? I am. You know, I just started listening to it. And, you know, I love kind of the mental health and psychology behind people that commit crimes. So I found it very fascinating. And they're starting with the Stephen Avery case. I also like the fact I can't figure out if it's his um, lady friend or if they're just friends. Um, the lady from the Scotland Yard, who is his counterpart on the show. But they're really kind of breaking down profiling the people involved in that case. And Stephen Avery's behavior when he got out of jail and how it was a little bit odd the way that he behaved. He just seemed so kind of unconcerned when he was finally released after his wrongful conviction. So it's it's interesting. And I think it's, you know, people that clearly know what they're talking about. So it's a really interesting perspective to get. Toby, are you listening to any other podcasts right now that Francis might want to tune into? I don't know about right now. I thought the, what's that thing called that the Atlanta Constitution did? Oh, the breakdown. breakdown. I liked that one. That one was one yeah. of my favorites. Well, I listened to Breakdown a few months ago, and I think people who listen to our podcast would probably really like that. And there's a couple from the BBC. There's What Happened to Vishal and Who Killed Elsie Frost, both from the BBC. Kevin, are you listening to anything right now that our listeners should uh, tune into, like Francis should tune into? I, I think that she would like Someone Knows Something. Funny. You should mention that one. Now, what's the name of the, the narrator? David Ridgen is his name. Yeah. It's like Sarah, but instead of like it being so like first personal, confessional, diary like Sarah... He writes more like, uh, it's more like F. Scott Fitzgerald or something. His narration is very... Introspective. Yeah, yeah. It's very kind of literary, and I don't know if it fits the whole other tone of it, but it's interesting. Well, it's funny you should mention someone knows something. I actually spoke to David Ridgen today. I recorded a short interview with him that we will air at a future date. Someone knows something. It's very interesting. It's very Canadian. It's a cold case about a five-year-old boy who went missing a number of years ago in a very rural part of Canada and how the family and the town are sort of coping with it. And the interesting thing that David Ridgen said, and I, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, is that he is trying to solve the case, which I think is very interesting. Did that woman say she was from Neverland? land? Oh, there was somebody from Ireland and somebody from the Netherlands. Oh, Netherlands. I thought she was from Michael Jackson's house. No, she's Dutch. <laughs> she's Dutch. Oh, yeah, I thought it was Neverland. Oh, stop it. All right. So we also got some listener email, an email from Robert. Kevin, this is for you. Mm -hmm. uh, would you consider at the risk of self-promotion on your part of doing a podcast about your new book at some point? And I loved it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, we do a podcast about our new book. Maybe if we had Toby and Laura do it and ask us questions. Yeah, no, we're probably not going to do a podcast. Probably not going to do that. Just no. read the book. That's enough of a podcast. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we know they're going to love it. And so why don't you spend an hour talking about how great we are? Right. So this is a question for you. The book is called Dark Heart, by the way. It's available <laughs> through our Amazon link. By the way, Toby Prime and Laura, Amazon. you guys need to get on writing some new books because clearly our listeners buy our books and that is I know. awesome. I know. I know. I actually sat down this afternoon and wrote for like two hours. So so uh, listener Kelly wants to know, are any of you guys watching Better Call Saul? And what do you think of it? Yeah. I am. I really like it. I think it's good. It, you, you know, in some ways, it's certainly a nod to the folks that followed Breaking Bad. And Laura, Toby, have you guys watched Breaking Bad? Are you watching Better Call Saul? You know, I had to stop. When Breaking Bad came out, I was still in the midst of all of my defense investigator work. So I had to watch kind of like light and fluffy shows when I came home. I couldn't take any more of that. There, there's just so many episodes of Breaking Bad 
that I just felt like I would never write if I got sucked into it. <laughs> so I, I watched probably like 10 episodes or something. And I was just like, I got to I gotta give it up. All right, Toby, this is a question from Kelly. So I know that you occasionally still listen to the Maura Murray podcast. And she also wants to know how you feel about the portrayal of Northern New Hampshire in that podcast. In my experience, Northern New Hampshire is awesome. Um, <laughs> I do not go up there worried that people are following me or might do harm to me or anything like that. I've got several friends who live up there. It's great. The mountains are great. And the skiing there, I hear, is great. You hear? I, I don't ski. It looks really good when you're driving yeah. oh, by Oh, please, the Kevin, you don't ski either. I apres ski. <laughs> I thought you guys were like a fair weather skiers. No, I am a fair weather snowboarder. Kevin is a either foul or fair or weather sitting in a lodge by a fire guy. <laughs> I got the okay. best drinking sweaters. But, but Toby, I do feel like there is something. I, I do think that that podcast, maybe they're like stretching a little bit as far as trying to portray the North Country and the New Hampshire is like a little bit creepier than it is. It's certainly not the Pacific Northwest of like, you know, the Tannis and Black Tapes, right. you know, wet, creepy, bug filled. You know, it's not mystical. I will say the creepiest thing about the North Country is that's where this, you know, most famous alien abduction in New Hampshire took place. The Betty that and Barney true. Hill case. And also an episode of Finding Bigfoot was filmed up there last year. So <laughs> I'm just saying. My, my guess is that they did not find Bigfoot up there. <laughs> I don't know. We tried to get tickets. They were sold out. So, you know, who Spoiler knows? Spoiler alert. I have watched many episodes of Finding Bigfoot. They have not yet found Bigfoot. <laughs> Series would be over. Gun squatching. I think I found Bigfoot in my plated box this week, but we can talk about that next week. All right. So we got two more voice memos today, and they are both a great segue into the next part of our conversation. So I'm just going to play both of those right now. So let's just take a listen, and then we'll talk about them on the other side. Hey, gang. This is Shayna from Michigan. I love the show, and I was just wondering what you guys thought of episode eight of The People vs. O.J. Simpson. I thought the music choices were kind of awesome, actually, and I loved seeing the jury side of things. And I was just wondering what you guys thought of it. I know you're not all caught up, but those of you who have watched it, what did you think? Hello, this is Darla from San Antonio, Texas. I love your podcast. It has the right amount of funny and smart conversation, and I appreciate that. I have a question about the O.J. Simpson case. If you were going to write a story, a true crime novel about that case, would you include more information about Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman? I know the TV series is getting some shame for making it about O.J. and all of the lawyers. I think the series is very interesting, and I can't wait to watch it every Tuesday. I'm just wondering what you feel like you would do about the victims, if you would include that in your story, the ethics of that, whether or not you feel like you have to or should not, and whether or not you think it would be more interesting if you did. So, Laura, first we heard Shana ask the question, now we are all caught up, right? We are. Toby, are you caught up, please? I please? caught up. All right. So, Laura, episode eight and the music, I know you had thoughts about that. Shana wants to know, what did you think? I loved it. You know, I especially loved it in the end scene when the jurors came in in black and they played, I can't. I don't even know what they played. Fight the but power. It, Fight the power. It fit, it fit so perfectly when that woman just kind of had that little smile at the end and looked at Judge Ito. I just thought the music really enhanced this episode. What about you, Kevin? I know you had thoughts about the music as well. Oh, yeah, I really. I, I liked it. I mean, I, I was snapping along to Queen and another one bites the dust. <laughs> but I always sort of like, you know, the clever use. I mean, maybe some people might find it's obvious to go with that, but you, they hadn't used music like that yet in the miniseries yet. And I thought that was a really interesting episode, too. And I think it says a lot about 
other things maybe we can get into, but I did like the musical choices. All right, Toby, you are the only non-true crime author of the bunch. And so I want you to first address Darla's question. You know, the idea about if we were to write about the O.J. Simpson case, would we include more about Nicole and Ron, the victims? And what are the ethics of it? Do you think that they are missing pieces here? Or do you think that that's not what this story is about? It's not what this series is about. I guess there's two things. Like, I don't know what knowing more about them, how that would really affect the series, because it doesn't seem to be about their tragedy at all, really. I mean, you don't even really see it with the the Simpson kids very much. And then the second thing is I, I just don't know. I mean, in these situations, like how do you portray the victims? You know, I guess in my my sort of limited reading in true crime and the ones I can kind of think of right off the top of my head, you know, it seems like people are often portrayed in, as sort of saintly or it, it shouldn't have happened to a person like that as if it should happen to somebody else. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think if I was a friend of Ron Goldman's, I would probably feel like that was very lacking. But it just doesn't seem to be what this program is very interested in. I, I do think that the tack of this series and you know, the tack of Tubin's book really is about the trial and about the the story of the trial. And, you know, the victims definitely are secondary They're not secondary to what happened, but they are secondary to this part of the story. I almost feel like Robert Kardashian, the way that his character is sort of grappling with it, he is the surrogate for what we're supposed to be feeling about the victims and our sort of sense of remembering that they're there. I don't know. What do you think, Laura, about this whole question of should we be getting more surrogates for the victims? Should we be getting more of the victim's story? Or is it not the story of this series? You know, I think in in more of what we would think of as a traditional true crime book, I think that, you know, we usually kind of start with the victim. I mean, that's that's sort of the typical tact. And you try to include information about who they were and what led up to them being killed which isn't always easy because families, you know, often don't want to talk. And so you're really grasping, trying to get information about that person, which is a challenge because you really want to bring that person to life and sort of humanize them in the midst of a tragedy. But I don't think that's what this particular TV show is about. I mean, this really is, as Kevin pointed out this week, this is Marsha Clark's story. You know, I'm coming from the defense side. I'm not liking the defense team in this show. I find myself irritated with them and I I just don't come away liking them, but I find myself having a lot of compassion for Marsha Clark and for the prosecutors. So I think it's really showing a different side of the story that we normally might not learn as much about because we would normally be focused more, I think, on the victims. In the book version, yeah, you, you try to get something about the victim in, and usually in the beginning, because you want the reader to have sympathy for the victim. You you have to sort of answer the question, why should I care, above and beyond the fact that a life was taken. You want them to understand, like, why it was so horrible that it was this life, right? Every life is, is special, of course, but that's sort of the writing trick, if you will. But there's only so much you can put in in the beginning. And I think we see this in Serial, that there's only so many places that you can start. And then necessary stuff that sort of in the end feels like I should have known that sooner keeps getting pushed back further and further. Now, in the TV show, I understand why Ron Goldman and Nicole Simpson aren't a bigger part of the story. We have seen Fred Goldman kind of early on have a very emotional scene with Marsha Clark. But they're put out because the story really isn't about 
the victims in this case. And sometimes the stories aren't really primarily about the victims. There's another story. We'll say that in Darkheart, you can make the argument that the story is not Lizzie Marriott's story, our victim. It's really about the other people, the perpetrators, Seth Mazalia and Kat McDonough. I remember Ron Goldman, excuse me, Fred Goldman sort of making a big stink towards the end of the trial when he was watching sort of the shenanigans and went to a press conference, you know, yelling and crying about how I mean, basically saying that this was a circus when nobody would say that and brought the focus back to the victims. And so it's very possible that that will happen. Most of the other things that we've talked about, you know, the first season of Serial, like Heyman Lee, is just, she's kind of sketched out, but there's not a real sense of who she is. And in making a murderer, it's even less so. You see a little bit of a home movie and you get a sense of her brother. But as far as like, having some kind of real sort of empathy for them. Like, they they don't spend much time trying to evoke that in those at all. You know, we talked a lot a couple weeks ago about, you know, the ethics of saying whether or not we think O.J. Simpson is guilty or not and how that differs from, you know, naming a potential perpetrator in another case who hasn't been named in the legal system. I almost feel like the take of this series is that as the audience— we are supposed to just sort of all acknowledge together that O.J. Simpson did it. So that's kind of off the table. We actually know about DNA now. I mean, one of the interesting things about the show is that no one understands DNA. No one understands, like, the whole, like, CSI stuff that now we, as a modern audience, take for granted that if your DNA shows up at the crime scene and in your own house mixed with the victim's DNA and in your car, like... You did it. You probably did it. So I almost feel like the assumption is that OJ did it. So that's been taken off the table. Am I am I crazy to think that as the audience that, that we're all kind of in that together? No, I mean, that's really how I've been looking at it based on, you know, the way that things have been portrayed. And I'm looking at it more like it's, it's really a, a study in legal maneuvering on both sides. And I loved the analysis that both sides were doing of the jurors as the case was going on and how they had the juror that was nicknamed, what was it, the demon? Yeah. Um, They wanted to get rid of the demon. Easter Island Uh, was the other juror. Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think going into it, I mean, you even get the sense that Robert Kardashian thinks that he did it at some point as the series goes on. It's sort of like going into a case where somebody is using the insanity defense and they go in and they admit that they've they've committed the crime and then they argue as to why they shouldn't be found guilty or, you know, why they shouldn't go to jail for that. But I, I think this story is really more about sort of how, you know, both sides in a case maneuver as the trial is going forward and, and really giving you that behind the scenes insight that you normally wouldn't have. Toby, what did you think of the scene where we saw Marsha Clark make a devastating argument against O.J. Simpson while doing shots in a bar with Chris Darden and his friends, an argument that she can't seem to make in the courtroom. Yeah, I mean, that did kind of stick out to me is that, you know, she's able to lay it out very sort of concisely and coherently. And I don't know what her closing argument's like, 
But that right there, it's a hard one to rebut. Well, there's been a lot of controversy around this show. Sarah Paulson, in particular, has sort of taken umbrage with the fact that Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote the book on which this whole series is based, has said that Marsha Clark has hubris. And Kevin and I, you know, you and I have argued about this. Because, it's a word of you, yeah, hubris. And yeah, and I feel like this has never happened before. She's a prosecutor. She's always had cases where there's been lots of evidence. She has no reason to think. She won't win this one based on the evidence that bar scene, we see that she has a lot of skill in making the argument to win a case. Despite everything else that's going on, like, why wouldn't she think she would win? I don't think it's hubris. I think it's confidence based on her past experience and also lack of understanding of what this kind of case is, because it's literally the first time it's a case like this has ever happened. Now, for our audience who might be younger, I think the important thing to understand is there hasn't been a celebrity murder trial before this. Like, this was the first one. Do you think that, as it's portrayed, you know, does Marsha Clark, does she have hubris? Or is she yeah. just going by what no, she knows to no, be true? No, I mean, this is a Greek tragedy, right? I mean, it should be the hero of the story. And I do contend that whose story is this? That it's Marsha Clark's. That the reason that she fails, ultimately, is, in the literary sense, hubris. That she feels that she, everything is going her way, that she has the strength, she has all the evidence, she has the skill, and she is blind to the actual thing that is going to happen. And Chris Darden is very much the Cassandra who can foresee what the problems are, the racial politics behind it. And so in that sense, I do think that. And I also think that The People versus O.J. Simpson is very much like Serial that every episode is in its way a contained theme of a larger narrative. And it, that hit me when we saw the one on the jury. Because within five minutes, there's this opening scene, and then it says, eight months earlier, right? And it's like, oh my God, I forgot all about the jury. So did I. They were just sort of a side thing. We, we There are so many you know, major factors that go in this. You can't start episode three with talking all about the jury. You have to wait for it. And so in that way that Serial has to like compact everything and you can't throw everything in chapter one. Uh, maybe you can in a book. You can throw an awful lot, but you can't do everything in episode one of Serial. You can't do everything in episode one of O.J. Simpson. I think that, that yeah, Marsha Clark's hubris is the thing that ultimately leads to the failure to get a conviction. Now, Laura, we did see in this jury episode, and you know, I know that some of the facts in the show, People vs. O.J. Simpson, are like a little bit fictionalized, but I do know that they are based on the real narrative of the real trial. And there were 24 jurors initially, and an unprecedented number of jurors were dismissed. Have you ever seen a case anything like that in your experience working for defense? No, never, <laughs> never. I mean, it was it was absurd. And I'm watching this thinking, did they not actually screen these people before they let them on the jury? Or, or was it just that it was a different time where they didn't put that much background work into it? It was just insane to me. But none of us have been involved with a case of actual juror sequestration that no. went on for months and months and months, right? Well, I couldn't think of another case like that. I, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, none of the cases I ever worked on had jurors sequestered like that. Um, if they were, it was like it, they weren't holed up in a hotel. It would be like, OK, you're not allowed to read the news when you go home. And, you know, one of the things that's happened in recent years is, is people have gotten caught going on social media, Twitter and Facebook and things commenting about cases that they were actively sitting on. But 
nothing like this. I mean, I was just thinking these people must have been out of their minds. Now, we saw some, like, not just maneuvering, but actually active investigation of these seated jurors and alternates during the case. As a defense investigator, did you ever look into jurors at all while they were seated or, you know, as you were doing voir dire? You were allowed to sort of research them ahead of time, and then you had to wait 30 days from the time that the trial and or their jury service ended before you followed up. In New Hampshire, we have very lengthy questionnaires that the people fill out. So for most of the cases I worked on, you know, you would go through the questionnaires and if there were people that had certain crimes that they had been involved with in the past or victims of crimes or families in law enforcement or things, you know, those were the type of things they looked at ahead of time. But I was never involved in a case that was so high profile that we would have been investigating jurors before they even got on the court. Did you ever give them nicknames like they did in the defense team? (laughs) <laughs> no, com- I give everybody nicknames. <laughs> I have nicknames for everyone. I want to hear mine. Really, yeah, no, I don't have one for you. But Toby, I want to talk about the um, other storyline that happened in the episode before the jury episode, and that was the episode in which Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden went away for the weekend together, and you know, spent the weekend. You know, they spent that evening in the bar with his friends. And then there was that scene in the hallway of the motel where it really clearly seemed like she was waiting for him to make a move. And then he didn't make a move. And then he decided to make a move instead in the courtroom with the glove demonstration, (laughs) the one that she had told him not to do specifically, and he decided to do anyway. What did you think of the way that that played out in the show? And then what did you think about how does that tie with your memory of the whole if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit situation that happened in the real life trial? I remember seeing like the little clip of OJ trying on the glove and Cuba Gooding Jr. does a pretty good job of imitating that. And it was kind of farcical. As far as their sort of almost hookup moment, I guess Christopher Darden like writes about it in his, you know, autobiography. But I I thought of it as kind of sort of accentuating the fact that the two of them are kind of in it together in a way that nobody else can really understand. Like despite the fact that you got Gil Garcetti and you've got all these other people who are sort of working in the background for them, the two of them are are really they're the face of this and they're working under incredible amounts of pressure. My sense from watching it is that it begins to dawn on them that where they thought they were in a position of strength, that they may be in a little bit over their heads. So I I think that was kind of the two-step point that was being made there, was that it's just the two of them together, and they don't quite get it. I guess Marsha Clark kind of got it more with the glove thing, but I think they just kind of showed... You know, again, how, how they're, they're, they might have been in a little bit over their head. They're working together, but they're slightly out of step. What were you going to say, Kevin? Well, I was going to say that, you know, as far as their relationship arc, that is the climax <clears throat> of their <laughs> their arc. But then you did see how, like in the falling action after that, you know, how difficult the relationship got. And you just have to go back and think, you know, if Chris don't get it in, the prosecution don't win. Oh, God. Oh. Oh, how about this one? I got another one. <laughs> if Marsha don't want the D... Then OJ will go free. 
All right. You know what that tells me? It tells me we should not go out for drinks before we record this podcast. That's what it tells me. Laura, I want to talk about, you know, all like joking aside, I want to talk about what I think is really a larger theme of the series, talking about Marsha's story. I think part of the story that didn't even occur to us when it was actually happening in real time because of the you know national conversation was just so different at that time than it is today. And that is the personal toll that this case is taking on Marsha Clark and the impact on her real life and the fact that she was also a mother while this trial was going on. I'm wondering about what your thoughts have been about that part of the series. Oh, that was the part that just sort of made me wild. I felt so badly for her, you know, because I went into this series, you know, really expecting to dislike her because that's what I remember from when the trial was happening. And as it was going on about her going through her divorce and she's late to court because she's just, you know, coming out of the divorce you know, hearing and the custody hearing. And, you know, now it's very common to hear people talking about work-life balance and family-friendly workplaces. And, you know, when I worked at the public defender's office, you know, people didn't get paid very much. But you know what? They were really on top of creating a family-friendly environment and giving people flexible schedules in order to, you know, take their kids to after-school activities and things like that. So as I was listening to and watching Marsha that time when she was like had the one night that week that she was going to have her kids and that was the night that they were going to go late in court and she said she couldn't. I felt so badly for her but I also felt like she was really a pioneer in a way in terms of somebody that was actually forcefully standing up for you know that work-life balance that now we sort of take for granted because so many places put an emphasis on that but at that time it was really new. It was really chauvinistic openly chauvinistic for like Johnny Cochran to like make a, a, a crack which w- was probably you know very sort of era appropriate but it seems so it anachronistic. Was also tactical and let's face it Johnny Cochran I think the thing that we've learned you know like it's assuming that this fiction is close to reality in some way He's good at what he does. And that was a tactic and it worked. It got that hearing to happen. They are not, as he said to Christopher Darden a couple weeks ago, it's not about respect. It's about winning. And it's working, right? Isn't that what it's all about? When it all comes down to it in a courtroom, it's about getting the win, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is. I still, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't if you like can't win, Chris ain't going to get it oh, in. Jesus oh, Christ. All right. Now it is time. I think that we all agree that O.J. Simpson is a very interesting series. We are going to keep up with it. Toby, can we please convince you to keep up with it so we can talk about it again in a couple of weeks? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. All right. Good. Laura, you're in. You're full of rage about the family leave situation. I, I am. It's going to keep me going. And Kevin, we all know that you're in, I guess, right? I am in with both feet. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's move on now to my favorite part of this podcast. It's a little feature I like to call the crime of the week. A Los Angeles man expressed his displeasure in a sushi restaurant in a particularly cold-blooded way. After being kicked out, he returned through a 13-foot yellow python on the floor and then walked out. By the way, he got kicked out the first time for having a smaller snake in the restaurant. Which you, the you literally mean a snake, right? Yes, a literally okay. mean a snake, which the employees did not appreciate. Needless to say, after he threw that 13-foot python on the floor, chaos ensued. Diners threw their sashimi and sushi on the floor. They sashayed away. Authorities had to capture the snake, who then got stuck behind a cash register, and the owner was arrested on criminal threatening charges. It was basically a reptilian melee. So here's my question for you, Toby, and I'm going to start with you. 
What is the worst thing you have ever done to express your displeasure with bad customer service at a restaurant or otherwise? You did let us know that this was coming like a few hours ago. Mm -hmm. And I've been racking my brain as to (laughs) some like sort of shitty thing I did to a server or something. And I honestly, I don't think, I, I can't remember ever like, trying to screw somebody like that. Did you leave a 12% tip and just... I, I thought about leaving a 12% tip, but I was embarrassed, so I left a 15% tip. Well, you know what's really interesting is that 15% is an insult. This is an argument that Kevin and I have, or had, uh, is that you know he's from New England, which is notorious for its poor tipping practices, but like 15% exactly? Isn't that sort of like a Let's diss? hear from people well, all this over like the 1993. different... This is like I don't remember the exact... <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear from people in other parts of the country. What is this, you think, a standard tip for normal services? Normal, bad, and good. I'd love to hear that feedback, too. I usually do, like, you know, you usually do somewhere roughly between 15 and 20, right? I mean, it's... I do you know. 20 plus for average to good. I do slightly less than 20 if bad. 15 for me is a straight-up insult. 15 for me is, like, I calculate it to the penny, that it's exactly 15, and that's the message to you. Because to me, 15 is like the, the minimum. Even oh, a bad server. Oh, the such horrible people. Even a bad <laughs> server, you know they're making like $3.25 an hour at a yeah. good restaurant. So it's pretty bad. What about you, Laura? What is the what is the most creative way you've ever expressed your displeasure in any way? Maybe not a service situation if you're as nice as Toby. Well, I have to say, I mean, I have written some bad Yelp reviews for restaurants. Um, <laughs> That'll show them. my writing skills. But, but I did, you know, the time I became most enraged, and, and wanting to, you know, do something about it was when I was shopping for a new car and I was in this car dealership and I had pretty much picked out the car I wanted. And I went in and I was like, so, you know, I'm wondering if you have any deals going on. And the guy's like, sticker price is the price. And he was so obnoxious. I mean, he was, I, I just wanted to like punch him and that's not like me. So I, I came home and I stewed over it for about two days and I wrote this scathing Yelp review on their page and then I was so proud of myself and I went back on and I guess I had gotten bumped by Yelp because sometimes they deem your reviews not helpful or something. So I was like a not helpful Yelp review. Why don't you just um, take it out for like a really rough test drive? Yeah, no, no. We took it out for a test drive. I came back. I was like ready to buy it. And the guy was just, I said, so, um, you know, they're having a sale next door. He's like, good, go next door. I'm like, I will. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? Can you relate it all to this like snake person? Not throwing the snake. I, I've had some instances about, you know, over tip, but you know, the the thing that like- Under tipping, you mean? Under tipping, like getting, you, you know, when you like, it, like totally like called me out, like after I wanted to leave like no tip, you like made a big deal about throwing money down on the table. I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm sending a message. <laughs> But I usually, if I, the, the worst place I think for a service is usually like a cashier, either at, at a grocery store or like at a restaurant, fast food restaurant where they just sit there and they don't make eye contact and just grunt at you. And I do remember one time, and I think I was at a department store, had all my stuff, and the girl just ran it over the scanner and never looked at anything. And sometimes when people do that, I'll just say, thank you to them. <laughs> but one time I, did, I said to this, I said, thank you. And uh, I said, you know, the pleasure was all mine. And I said, no, honestly, if there was any pleasure in this transaction, it must have been mine. And I walked out. Did you feel like you made a difference that day? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> hey, she, I have another more on. important question. Yeah. What happened to that snake? Did they use it in the sushi or, do, you know, how did they Whoa. capture it? Yeah. All right. And we are going to end it on that note. So, Toby, if our listeners... Wait, are you going to say what you did, Rebecca? <laughs> you know, my feeling is that even if I got bad service... 
It really isn't about me because God knows I have worked retail for many, many years in previous parts of my life. So the thing is, like, I understand that people on the other side of the counter, I have sort of theory of mind and understand that, like, I'm not really an important part of their world. So I just try to brush it off and move on. Does that sound superior? That's very big of you. (laughs) Not like me who stews over it for days on end. And Yelp reviews. It's a (laughs) shitty story, but yeah. Hey, I've spent plenty of time on subreddits where that kind of patience is required to Mm. make it through the day. So (laughs) in any case, I guess we will end it on that note. So Toby Ball, now that you have secured your place on this panel and secured your place in our hearts, if people want to tweet with you, how can they reach you there? At Toby Ball NH. And Laura, you are on the Twitter as well, correct? Yes, at Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A. And Kevin Flynn, the pleasure, I know, is always all yours. How can people find you on the Twitter? (laughs) It's so weird when your wife says that. Uh, (laughs) You can find me at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you want us to answer, send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use our Amazon link. And if you love the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners find out all about us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Control Room 5 at New Hampshire Public Radio. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Oh, you're retired, um, so you're just like really retired. Yeah, you, but I'm it, only 44. Yeah, you know, I know like, that's what I'm saying. Like, like, hey, you know, hang out with guys and feed pigeons. Hey, Kevin, how yeah. old are you? I'm 45, <laughs> and I don't look. Yeah, I don't look anything as squared away as Wyrick. So, Kevin. Yeah. Have you seen the new T-shirts? Actually, I have. I have because I subscribed to the newsletter. That's awesome. Uh, they're not going to be in the newsletter yet, so you're going to have to change your answer. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we probably shouldn't have had two drinks before we came here, right? Oh, man. Seagram's is so awesome. <laughs> Wait, Downton Abbey. Didn't watch Downton Abbey, did you? I didn't. He's <laughs> way, no. <laughs> Neither did Toby. He's, he's way too masculine to watch Downton he Abbey. He would have loved Mary, that's all I have to say. She was a bitch, and I can tell that Wyrick would have liked Game that. of Thrones. Game yes. of Thrones. <gasps> we have to talk about that. Yeah. All right, guys. How did Kevin do on the second ad of this podcast? That was better. Yeah. You know, the thing about Harry's.com is that it sounds like it's kind of like some, like, gay fetish site. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. It's a weird website domain. Harry's.com. Can we uh, not upload that? Oh, part? I yeah, think you, you don't have to. You don't have to put that in. But we might include it in our actual show. <laughs> I think that'd be great for the outtakes after well, guys, they stop paying. I like it that Wyrick likes Joe Rogan. I bet you like The Rock too. Do you like The Rock? Are you, are you oh, a yeah. fan oh, of The Rock? rock. Wyrick smells that The Rock is cooking. Yeah, no, I'm sitting here with my little blanket and my PJs. That's it. I'm out. <laughs> hey, can you hold on a second? I'm, the sound studio has been breached by a cat. I have to get rid of it. <gasps> Toby's a cat person. Who knew? It's just as shocking as learning he has a chainsaw. I still haven't gotten over that.
Identity theft is no joke. That's why I'm excited that I've got LifeLock Ultimate Plus Identity Theft Protection. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock Ultimate Plus provides LifeLock's most comprehensive identity theft protection. Go to LifeLock.com now and enter promo code CRIMEWRITERS or call and mention CRIMEWRITERS to save 10%. Call one 800 866 7341 or go to lifelock.com. That's lifelock.com. I feel so protected now. <laughs> Thanks. Ahem. I didn't know I was on it. I'm so glad I am. Yeah. Thanks. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.